This is Strange Assembly, episode 322, Spelljammer, Adventures in Space. It's time for Dungeons and Dragons in Space, or should I say something like Spelljammer, Adventures, Adventures, Adventures in Space, 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 Space. Yes, right, we've got sailing ships, but in space, starship-sized dragons, and a bunch of animal-shaped spell-jamming ships that may or may not be biological or in origin, and all of that flying around from planet to planet and places in between. Now, remember, when you're picturing that, you need to picture it all in an over-the-top, almost comedic 1930s adventure comic strip turned into a 1950s adventure television show. Now, for the most part, when I do a review of a D&D book, I skip any sort of analysis of the physicality or price of D&D books. They haven't really changed in the last five years, but Spelljammer is different. It's a box set with three books and a GM screen. My thoughts on the Spelljammer set went something like this. One, wow, this box set is really fancy looking. I wonder how much of an upcharge they put on this thing. Two, oh, wait. It's only $70 MSRP for three books and a GM screen? That's great! Three. Wait. These books are super short. In fact, these three books put together are slightly shorter than the typical D&D 5e book. Four. Okay, this is just normal. It's the same MSRP as a single Dungeons & Dragons book plus a GM screen. So, for me... The upside here is that the box set does look really cool. It's got a nice, solid presence on your shelf that's beyond a standard D&D book. On the downside, I guess it does take up more space than if you had just put all the content in a single book. More importantly, you may not really want to pay for a DM screen to go with the book. The Dungeon Master screen reincarnated is really good, and at full price, it's still only 15 bucks, and there's a decent chance you've already got it. The main issue here, though, is that the Spelljammer DM screen is... It's bad. I, I kind of wish I had some nicer way to soften the blow, but yeah, I don't. Yeah, yeah, it's got a pretty thematic picture for the players to look at, but the content on the DM side of things is mostly useless. Almost half of it is random encounter tables. Another one of the four panels is more random ship tables that you will probably never use. Like, what is a random task that needs to be accomplished on the ship? Ooh, scraping barnacles off the hull. There's very little basic reference information, and only a little bit is spell jammer specific information. So on the whole four-panel GM screen, you're getting like one panel of useful stuff, a skill ability list, something about suffocation, weightlessness, ship-to-ship starting distance, how crashing works, and this image about how gravity and air work around a spaceship. Don't get me wrong, that one panel's handy, but it needs to be more. If this was something that stood alone and wasn't part of the Spelljammer books, I don't think I could ever recommend picking it up. Okay, but that, that's the GM screen and the physicality. But, but write the books. The books are the main selling point. There are three books in here. The Astral Adventurer's Guide, Boo's Astral Menagerie, and The Light of... Xerixis. God only knows if I'm pronouncing that right. The Astral Menagerie is basically a beastery. The Light of Xerixis is an adventure, 
And then Astral Adventurer's Guide is kind of the main book, so let's start there. It can be divided into three sections. Uh, one, character options and new rules. Two, starship layouts. And then three, the Rock of Brawl. The first third of the book, right, this is the most important part of the entire Spelljammer set. Right? Your character options and new rules. New playable species include the Astral Elves, who are elves adapted to life on the Astral Plane. Autonomes, constructs who are built by gnomes and who basically look like various sorts of robot gnome. The GIF or GIF, there is indeed a sidebar making a joke out of how to pronounce it. Space hippos with blunderbusses. The Hadazi, who are gliding monkey people. And if you've been paying attention online, these are the ones that prompted Watsi to issue an apology for being insensitive. The Plasmoids, who are amorphous blobs who probably spend most of their time in humanoid shape. And finally, the Thrykreen, who are an insectoid species. Personally, I like Astral Elves, but then I'm wildly biased and always like more Elves. These particular Elves can cast Sacred Flame, or some other cantrip, but come on, it should be Sacred Flame. They can Dimension Door a few times a day, and then they have the typical Elf stuff. Dark Vision, Fey Ancestry, Keen Senses, Trancing, that sort of thing. The Jif are the most distinctive species, right, the Hippos. I think that will probably what will stand out the most to people, but their theme and mechanics put a lot of weight on firearms, so how useful they are probably depends on whether you're in a campaign that allows firearms. Someday I will sit down and write an essay trying to figure out why I'm okay with androids and spaceships in my D&D in the appropriate place, but I just don't really want guns. Anyhow, there's also a certain charm to the plasmoids. Plus a lot of neat things you can do with the ability to, like, squeeze through a small whore or extend a pseudopod ten feet away. Uh, there are also two new backgrounds, both of which can be quite potent. The Wild Spacer and their ability to ignore penalties for being weightless is handy, but, you know, mostly for Spelljammer campaigns. But if your DM lets you be an astral drifter in a normal campaign, that's a heck of a thing because their background feature is to take the Magic Initiate Cleric feat, which is way better than most background features. In addition to the character options, there's the other stuff you need to play Spelljammer. Rules for how to get from place to place, how to fight while you're on the way. And you're not going to get the most thorough of explanations here, because this whole section is less than 10 pages. So let's start with the basics. You've got the Astral Plane. This is enormous. It's far bigger than the puny material planes where most... Dungeons and Dragons adventures take place, or I don't remember. Maybe they're all just different instances of the same material plane, but whatever, I'm going to talk about them separately for the purposes of this discussion. So indeed, you can picture each material plane as a sphere floating in the three-dimensional astral sea. That sphere isn't a single world, but generally a world and the star it's orbiting and maybe other planetary bodies, asteroids, whatever. Each of these spheres is called a wild space system. And each of those systems has the overlapping material and astral plane that you're used to. Outside of that wild space sphere, it's just astral plane. Inside the sphere, there's air to breathe on the planets, but then you're in space and can't breathe without help. Once you leave the wild space system, there actually is air in the astral plane, so that's not an issue. Yeah, that's kind of counterintuitive. But the vast distances in the Astral Sea means that you need special equipment to get anywhere in a reasonable amount of time. 
and you're also weightless whether you're in wild space or astral space. What you need to address all of these things is a spell jamming ship. Basically a spaceship with a spell jamming helm installed. Note that a helm in this context is a magical navigator's chair, not a magical helmet. Each spell jamming ship has its own gravity plane. Note this is a gravity plane. It's not pulling you to the center of the object like a normal one. It's kind of more like you normally see artificial gravity in a science fiction show, except it's not just always down to the bottom of the ship. It actually depends on which side of the ship that you're on. It's a plane, so it might be up or down, but only the two directions. Each spell jamming ship also has its own air bubble, which will be bigger if the ship is bigger. And most importantly, it has the ability to transverse the vast distances of the astral plane in reasonable lengths of time. This is fine and reasonably easy to manage when there's just one ship. But when two ships come near each other, for example, combat, then things get all out of whack. And frankly, a party with a picky GM is probably going to find half of the crew falling back and forth in space as gravity switches directions depending on how close they are and how they're getting further and further away and closer to bigger ships and creatures. But this doesn't really line up with the general description that gravity is, quote, whatever direction is most convenient. And I imagine there will be a lot of fudging rather than trying to figure out exactly what these vague rules require. But most of the page count in Astral Adventures is ship blueprints and the Rock of Brawl. The ship blueprints are what you would think and want. About two pages each on 16 different spell jamming ships. You've got a description, you've got, you know, literal blueprints of what this is what the deck layout is. It's the sort of thing that's hard to get excited about. It's not like there are rules to customize your own ship, but it is pretty vital to actually run Spelljammer. The Rock of Brawl, a setting that's basically an asteroid run by organized crime, is okay, but it's one of those things where like it's six pages, so there's not really enough detail to use it as an adventure base. You could use it as inspiration and then develop a lot more yourself, but you're kind of fighting that page count versus utility thing. Your second book, Boo's Astral Menagerie. This is another helping of antagonists. This one is a bit more skewed towards NPCs, as you have three or more NPCs of all the new player character species that I mentioned earlier, plus a few more. There's more Githyanki, there are vampires, there are space clowns. Remember, I told you, Spelljammer is kind of a comedic setting. On the low end of the scale, there are Artooks, who are sea starish plant creatures. And there are Sirlons uh, and other worm-like creatures. And these are, are very good folks to use for your, you know, first, second, third level characters. I, I like that we have multiple threats that are appropriate for low-level adventurers here. This isn't one of those things where everything is literally cosmic. There are some cosmic high-level threats, though, right? There's lunar dragons and solar dragons. We've got non-combatant things or, you know, maybe non-combatant things like small penguin-like merchants and giant merchants. There are Beholderkin who masquerade as asteroids. That's pretty nifty. I like the look of the Rygar. These are androgynous and bioluminescent folk who can change their skin coloration and tend to use this to make bright patterns. Kind of wish they had been one of the playable options, honestly. And yes, yes, there are indeed space hamsters in Boo's Astral Menagerie. Finally, the adventure. The Light of Xerxes is a distinctive adventure for a distinctive D&D setting. It's a campy romp specifically designed to be played in shorter sessions, you know, two, three hours tops. 
On the bright side, this specificity of timing lets them build particular episodic cliffhangers into the adventure. This is the sort of thing that could be really cool. Unfortunately, it probably loses its luster after the eighth time that a session ends with a giant monster shows up to eat you. And then the next session begins with, oh no, wait, it just wanted to say hi and then it left and nothing happened. I'm slightly exaggerating for effect, but, but only slightly. Unfortunately, even if you're into this Flash Gordon-style camp, it's hard to get past how little the player's actions matter in this adventure. These are some really locked rails that you're on, and you as the player will be able to tell this when you're playing through. I'm not usually one to complain about a published adventure being on rails. All published adventures have to put the party on rails to some extent, but it really stands out here. Plus, there's a lot of NPCs showing up, kind of doing their thing for reasons not always apparent, and then kind of wandering off to never matter again. I want to applaud the effort to do a different narrative structure and really get into this adventure, but it just doesn't work well for me. I don't know. Overall, Dungeons & Dragons deserves a lot of praise for trying to expand the scope of the stories it tells. And the mood and tone of Spelljammer really play into that expansion. Unfortunately, the Spelljammer Adventures in Space box set brings a lot of disappointments, from the poor GM screen, to the shaky adventure, to the muddy starship interaction rules. There is this cool concept here to play around with, but the execution of the concept is kind of lacking. You've been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can find us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to this podcast there on the Apple Podcast app, through Amazon, through Spotify, Google Play, wherever you go, we should be there. If you try to subscribe on your favorite podcatching service and we're not there, I would like to know so I can fix that situation. You can reach me at chris at strangeassembly.com. You can also find us at the usual social media. So we're facebook.com slash strangeassembly. We're at strangeassembly on Twitter. We're at strangeassembly on Instagram. That sort of thing. I always like to hear from you. But until then, I'm Chris Stevenson. This is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.